Welcome to Paranormal Blip, episode two. Today we are tackling one of the biggest questions out there. What happens in the afterlife? What happens after you die? Well, we're going to be tackling that in a minute. But first of all, a couple of words to... uh, We're going to take a look at the news, take a look at the news. And there's one story in particular, which I think is a very substantial development, which didn't happen this week, actually. But it's still kind of in the air, if you like. Um, But first of all, thank you so much for your response to episode one. And if you haven't heard episode one yet, it's slightly different format to this episode and the episodes that will follow. It's basically, I call it the origin story. Origin story. And it talks about uh, who I am. It talks about who I am and why I'm doing this. So if you want to know who I am and why I'm doing this, then go over to episode one. And it's only 33 minutes, so that's no time at all, is it? No, no time at all. Now, um, we've got new arts. We've got new intro and outro music and a little bit of music after the news as well. Beautiful art, by the way. Did you see the new art? Oh, it's gorgeous. That's what they call it. Art. (laughs) And the guy who did that, his mother is actually one of the best painters I know. She's right up there. She's definitely in the top three. I know quite a lot of painters. I mean, you know, top two, potentially. Well, yeah, she is. Well, anyway, I know lots of painters, uh, not that many, but a few painters, and she's incredibly brilliant, and I love her a bit. She's the best. Anyway, <laughs> let's get on with the show. So, right, news, okay? First of all, I'm, I'm going to do the bit, yeah, the bit, best bit that you'd love. Share it, like it, subscribe. If you like what you hear, and I'll say it at the end as well, because, you know, if if you make it to the end, it's probably a good idea that you know probably one person who would be uh, interested in listening to this as well. So the big news really the last couple of weeks is the uh, the launch of the Galileo project by Avi Loeb, the Harvard uh, dude, the astronomy department astrophysicist, isn't he? Yeah. And I mean, this is extraordinary uh, news, really. And I think we haven't really kind of, uh, you know, kind of focused on it enough in the, you know, in the world, if you like. Um, So the Galileo project, it's dedicated to the proposition that humans can no longer ignore the possible existence of extraterrestrial technological civilizations. And that science should not dogmatically reject potentially extraterrestrial explanations because of social stigma or cultural preferences, factors which are not conductive to the scientific method of unbiased empirical inquiry. We now must dare to look through new telescopes, both literally and figuratively. So that's a quote from the Galileo um, homepage which is uh, at Harvard University, where Mr. Loeb is based. Professor Loeb, thank you very much. And uh, essentially what they have done is they've raised, um, I think it's roughly $1.5 million. And with that, they can get a whole bunch of um, 10. They can get 10 telescopes, apparently. And they're now in the position, I mean, beautiful adventure, 
but they need to kind of work out where are they going to place these 10 telescopes. So the idea essentially is that they're going to look at the sky and start to collect data for, you know, UFOs. We're talking UFOs here. We're talking UAPs here. So that's incredible, isn't it? And they've, you know, 1.5 million isn't, you know, can't, it's not a bad start, is it? But the idea is that they're going to, they want 10 times that amount. And so they want 100 telescopes. And, um, you know, Mr. Loeb, Professor, sorry, Loeb has done quite a lot of press on this. So it's quite easy to find information about it if you want to uh, know more. But what the reason why I'm kind of using this as an example of, you know, something recent that's happened that is interesting for me to talk about is that I think it is a very good example of, you know, a scientist at the height of his professional, you know, kind of powers, if you like, you know, the top of his career, who has the balls, frankly, to come out and say, you know, come on, we've got to get our act together here. And it flies, and it's, it's exactly like the stigma surrounding, you know, um, reports uh, in the Navy and other parts of the US military, and obviously not just the US. You know, we need to get away from the stigma. One of my aims uh, last week's show, aim number one, was to get to a stage where people are kind of comfortable and happy um, talking about uh, paranormal activities and events and experiences in their lives and so this is a huge step change I feel that somebody of uh, Professor Loeb's status has said yes I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get involved and be the kind of you know main this is what he's doing now at Harvard yep he's received a massive amount of funding obviously in a short amount of time and um, you know he's looking for more funding and of course, there's a huge uh, kind of public appetite for his work. You know, there's no question about that. Um, so that it, it's very good news that he's doing it. Uh, he says that he expects some data in the next year, which is interesting. He approaches it from a purely scientific point of view. He has said that, you know, the um, evidence isn't in for us to... Um, bypass physics and the kind of, you know, everything we know about physics as yet, if evidence comes in which challenges the kind of, you know, classical, if you like, version of physics, then we need to maybe kind of go back to the drawing board and work out, well, what are we missing? Yeah. But clearly he's, you know, addressing it from a scientific point of view. But the point is, that the scientific point of view is that you go in there not with a kind of predetermined sense of what it is that you want to find and just, you know, get the evidence to fit your own, um, you know, ideas of what you want to find. But you go in with an open mind and a clean slate. And it's fantastic that he's doing it. And it's very interesting because some of the, you know, the chutzpah that he's showing um, comes up time and time again in this episode with various people, scientists, who are, you know, kind of pushing the barriers or the boundaries in one direction or another. So that's the news. Next, what happens after you die?
So I'm going to start now with uh, this question, what happens after you die? And I'm going to begin with Eben Alexander. Now, Eben Alexander um, used to be a neurosurgeon, and he was a very successful neurosurgeon. And then in uh, 2008, he um, caught meningitis bad, bad version of meningitis, and he uh, went into a coma, and he was in this coma for seven days, and during that time, he had a near-death experience that he describes in great detail in interviews and in a book that he wrote. Um, he, the, the, the chances of him surviving were um, put down to um, something like, I think 1%, not good, or maybe it was 2%, let's double it, <laughs> but basically, you know, not, not great, and so, you know, essentially, seven days in a coma, people were thinking, they were actually on the, the last day when he came out of the coma, which was a Sunday, um, the medical team looking after him had convened a meeting with his family saying, you know, we need to withdraw support because basically he's not going to make it. Um, which is, you know, chilling if you think about it. And so what happened, though, is that he he uh, returned to his body. And over the course of a couple of months, he um, got back his memory. When he initially returned, he couldn't remember any family members. You know, he, he had no kind of sense of of where he was whatsoever, but he recovered, and he recovered incredibly, and, you know, the chances of survival were 2%, but the chances of recovery were, you know, it wasn't going to happen. Now, he had doctors uh, review his case and look at his, you know, case files over that uh, week, and, the, the you know, people were saying, people who came in specifically to kind of review who weren't, in, you know, weren't part of his uh, medical team looking after him, uh, were utterly perplexed. You know, how did this man survive? You know, how, let alone recover, how did he survive? And then how was he able to make an incredible recovery? Well, um, Eben Alexander had an extraordinary near-death experience, whereby he uh, was um, kind of present in a, in a turgid, like, earth um, for, for quite a while, and then he worked out that there was a kind of way out of this um, state into a state of peace and bliss and love, and so... Uh, in near-death experience testimonies, there is uh, it's probably about 1% to 10% of those experiences have a negative um, experience. It's difficult to get a number on that because if you have a bad experience that, you know, goes against the kind of, you know, common understanding of near-death experiences, such as they are, 
which is that you go to a place, you know, that you, is absolutely beautiful. You meet your uncle and, you know, he looks great. And, you know, <laughs> you have this kind of amazing sense of love and peace. If you have something counter to that, then you are not going to report it, basically, are you? Because you're going to think, oh, Christ, like, what does that mean to for me? You know, everyone else goes into paradise and I end up um, like having a hard time. Now, I'm going to look at the um, Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, later on. Um, and in there you do come across, um, you know, kind of like uh, baddies, if you like. <laughs> you do come across... Uh, you know, malevolence, you know, monsters, essentially. But in near-death experiences, the vast majority of them are positive, life-affirming experiences. It may be that uh, that's kind of tilted, because obviously if you have one of those, then you're going to report it more than if you have something counter to that, you know, something negative. Nevertheless, Eben Alexander's was... Uh, generally positive even though he did keep going down into this kind of strange i think he calls it the earthworm point of view or something like that whereby he's basically kind of like in the dirt and he kind of found a way out of it but he kept returning to this um dirt place and there's various things that is common in near-death experiences that uh Dr. Alexander did not experience. So, for instance, the life review. So the common near-death experience is that you go through the, you know, some of it has um, uh, attached itself to mainstream understanding, to pop culture, you know, kind of common culture so much that it's become a cliche, you know. But it is true that the common kind of average, if you like, or the mean um, uh, mathematically mean uh, near-death experience involves uh, travelling through a tunnel of light you get to the other side often there is a guide there often the guide is uh, accompanied by people that you might know it may be that you know the guide um, or that you have this kind of sense of familiarity about the guide even if you feel like you, you know, you don't recognize them, if that makes sense. Um, often there's the, you know, kind of beautiful place. There are kind of specific cultural attachments and personal, very, very personal, specific attachments to the uh, kind of afterlife, you know, plane, if you like. I'm not too sure what to call it. Um, let's just go with plane, shall we? And so, for instance... Um, you know, that's why people see Elvis, like, you know, fans of Elvis see Elvis. Of course, it's difficult to work out whether you call this a soul, whether you call it consciousness, um, whether you call it something else. Yeah. But essentially, the part of you that is you that doesn't really have anything to do with your legs that don't work or your hip that's bust or your, you know, wonky teeth or even the perfect bits of you, you know, your beautiful eyes and your robust back, <laughs> the, you know, the you-ness of you continues, okay? And it continues into this space whereby you are guided, like literally guided around, okay? And part of that guidance is that you have what is called a life review, which is that all of the events of your life are replayed back to you, 
and in this version of your life, um, the bad stuff that you did to other people, you feel that. So, you know, that time you cheated on your wife or whatever, you feel what the, the, the hurt and the pain that that caused your wife, okay, as an example, you know. Not that I'm saying you cheated on your wife, but maybe you did. Um, but if you did, then it's going to come back to, you know, bite you. So all of the bad stuff that you did, you feel. All of the good stuff that you did, you kind of are, you know, that's kind of reflected back on you as well. Yeah, obviously. Now, um, after that, then, it's common that you, uh, essentially, that's the kind of time when somebody will say, uh, it's not your time. Go back. Now, because Evan Alexander was there for um, seven days or, you know, not, not there for seven days, but he was in the coma for seven days. He did this strange kind of cyclic thing of, you know, not quite getting to the point of returning, but eventually he then did. After the seven days, he then did return to his body. He made this extraordinary recovery. I mean, basically a recovery that kind of shouldn't have happened, you know, from a kind of medical point of view, it shouldn't have happened. And then he started to really think about, well, what is it that I experienced? Yes. And he then uh, got in contact. He, he wrote a book, which was a big hit. And then he got in contact with the guys over at the uh, University of Virginia. They've got a division of perceptual studies that started in a long time ago, 50 uh, years ago, yeah? 1967 it started. So what's that? Like 54 um, years ago, isn't it? Yeah. So it started with this guy called Ian Richardson. Uh, Ian Richardson, That's he's an actor, isn't he? Ian Stevenson. Ian Stevenson is the Don when it comes to reincarnation. He got some money from the dude that invented Z Xerox, the Xerox machines. And... He's, he had an extraordinary life, Stevenson, whereby he basically went around the world collecting stories of um, of reincarnation. And he, he kind of set up this, um, you know, this uh, department in the University of Virginia, which is still being run. And it's a, you know, science department. OK, so it's the Division of Perceptual Studies. And the guys that are there today and have been there for quite a while include Jim Tucker, Bruce Grayson, Edward Kelly. And I've got a link to this, to these dudes on the uh, show notes. OK, there's quite a lot of uh, links on the on the episode's description. OK, so, for instance, some of the things that they look at are children who report memories of past lives um, you know, so reincarnation, near-death experiences, obviously, deathbed visions, altered states of consciousness, um, you know, that that kind of, it's, it's totally this area, basically. And they're thinking of um, scientific experiments to do to try to work out what is going on here. So it's a fantastic um, department, you know, it's absolutely key in our thinking about the paranormal, that these guys are kind of doing that scientific work, okay? So Evan Alexander is working alongside them as well. Now, I'm going to play a little clip of Evan, and I, I Evan as I like to call him, 
And I um, have got a link to this entire uh, interview on the um, the show notes, okay? So, you know, listen to the whole thing. But this little clip, and it includes a question by the dude that's interviewing him. So here is uh, Dr. Alexander. In quantum physics, you can easily find discussions of kind of the top-down causality uh, of the mental universe. And that's really where we live. And that's why these kind of concepts are so important. Uh, and one of the most important is that no, conscious awareness is actually liberated when the brain and body die. Uh, the, the brain acts more as a reducing valve or filter that limits and constricts conscious awareness down to this teeny little trickle, an illusion of a here and now and of a sense of self. Whereas we actually have the power to go within in meditation, centering prayer, uh, other modalities uh, to discover a lot more about the fuller uh, aspects of our, our existence. And I think one of the most important lessons is so much of the damage in our world today over centuries has been a divorce between uh, science, technology, and our human spirit. You know, materialist science has tried to pretend there's no such thing as consciousness. And, you know, that's all an illusion. Uh, they're covering up the bigger illusion, which is the physical world. Uh, that, as real as it seems to us, we got to remember we're only experiencing a mental concept. It's a, a mental kind of a modeling of a world that we presume to be out there. So you're saying the traditional view and the probably the majority view of scientists and literally everybody that the brain produces consciousness and when the brain dies, consciousness goes, you say that's wrong. It's completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And there are more than 100 scientists around the world who study this who would agree with me. And this is good news for all of us because it really opens the door to free will and to our choices in this world. You know, materialist scientists like I was before my coma would try and uh, tell you that you have no such thing as free will. Because mm -hmm. they pretend it's all just the chemical reactions and electron fluxes in the brain, all following the natural laws of physics, chemistry, biology. So therefore, uh, anything that is conscious awareness is an illusion created by those chemical reactions and fluxes. And so there's no place you can put free will into any of that. It's all just a natural process by natural law. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think materialist uh, neuroscience has hit an absolute point of insanity. Uh, because I think free will is very much alive and well. In fact, I think the whole universe exists for sentient beings to manifest free will as a part of evolution of all of consciousness, kind of the way uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin talked about uh, uh, the evolution of consciousness in his book, The Phenomenon of Man in the Mid-20th Century. I believe he was very much on the mark about what is truly going on here. So Dr. Alexander there, he talks about uh, quantum theory, which we're going to touch on in a minute. But first of all, I'm going to look at this book, The Phenomenon of Man, that was written in 1940. But because old um, Teilhard de Chardin was a Jesuit priest, the Jesuit priests running the show back then didn't like what he'd written. It was a bit too radical for them. So they banned him from publishing. And it was only published after his death in 1955. And in this book, um, he uh, states or, you know, hypothesizes that evolution does not end with mankind, that evolution has a one 
track purpose to uh, come together into one point that he calls the Omega point. So, for example, he talks about the the, the states of, of life. Um, so, you know, starting with one cell organisms and then developing into animals with complex nervous systems. And then at that stage, that group um, have the capacity to acquire intelligence. And then when Homo sapiens came along, um, they uh, develop a cognitive layer of existence that he calls a noosphere. Um, so evolution continues and the noosphere gains coherence and it can be moved towards uh, this Omega point, the final evolutionary stage. Um, and he's put it really beautifully. He said, the living world is constituted by consciousness clothed in flesh and bone. So this idea that we are, you know, coming together and unifying, you know, over thousands of years, um, to a point where we can be done with all of the stuff around us, <laughs> all of the, you know, laptops and duvets and uh, cups of coffee. Um, and, you know, we are going to get to a point of Amiga, the Amiga point. Now, in the show notes, I uh, have an interesting article written in 1995 um, by Wired, you know, that kind of science journal. Well, it's not a journal. It's like a magazine, isn't it? Wired, not a journal. But anyway, it's quite, it's very interesting because they talk about some people have taken this idea of the noosphere to um, be the internet, okay? It's like, oh, he predicted the internet. I mean, it's very interesting that he, he talks about a consciousness in all things, uh, which is very much like um, the Gaia theory, James Lovelock's theory. Um, so it's an interesting, you know, book. I mean, it's interesting. It's absolutely... The man is fascinating. I mean, an incredible life. So now, uh, Evan, as I like to call him, he also spoke about uh, quantum theory. So now, how does this connect to the afterlife? This idea of quantum theory, well... Um, neuroscientists know that our brains project reality, but they can't explain how or why that's the case. Uh, and they can't um, physically identify the exact cerebral processes of consciousness. So Roger Penrose um, came up with a kind of solution or at least a proposition around this. In 1989, he published a book called The Emperor's New Mind. And he comes up with this hypothesis that consciousness cannot be explained by classical physics, but the answer may lie in the quantum world where the laws of physics fall apart. So he had no evidence to support his hypothesis until Dr. Stuart Hameroff uh, came along. Now, he's an anaesthetist. Or he's, he's an, an theologist. 
Um, so anaesthetists, they're very interesting people because they know how to turn on and turn off consciousness and they do it with, you know, great skill and finesse and nuance, but they don't know what consciousness is, which is incredible. So this doctor, Hameroff, he contacts Penrose and uh, he says, microtubules, that's what you are missing, microtubules. So these are tiny uh, bits that neutrons, uh, sorry, neurons are made of. Um, I mean, you know, tiny, tiny bits that neurons are made of. And uh, the key component is that they contain high densities of pi electrons positioned in such high clusters to allow them to be quantumly entangled. So information at one point in the brain can be processed and transferred to any other point instantly with no traceable path. So because he said, okay, this is what you're missing, Penrose, Penrose was able to transform his hypothesis to a solid theory, the orchestrated objective reduction. So shorten, that is shortened to ORC, O-R, ORC, O-R-C-H, and then O, and then R, ORC, O-R. That's the model. A biological philosophy of mind that postulates that consciousness originates at the quantum level inside neurons, rather than the conventional view that it's a product of connections between neurons. The mechanism is held to be a quantum process, um, like, a, like I say, called objective reduction that is orchestrated by cellular structures called microtubules. So now I'm going to play a little clip of... Uh, Dr. Hameroff, and in this he talks about how we are literally ripples in the fine structure of space-time geometry. And interestingly, Hameroff and Penrose, they differ in their, um, uh, their, their kind of where they go with the, their, their theory. Yep, they agree on the theory, but uh, Hameroff uses the theory as a jumping-off point to talk about um, the paranormal, essentially. So in this clip, he talks about near-death experiences. He talks about reincarnation. Um, and Penrose will not go there. Penrose uh, says, you know, th 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 my um, theory is that uh, the brain creates consciousness, if you like, not the other way around. So Penrose isn't quite there yet. I mean, it's, you know, he knows what he's talking about, so we can't totally dismiss him because he's not quite there yet. But, I mean, who knows where there is, you know, and who am I to say that he's not quite there yet? But it's quite interesting that these guys who came together to form this theory um, talk about it in different ways and actually seems that they kind of disagree about how to, um, you know, kind of extend, like the kind of logical extension of what this means. But anyway, this is a paranormal podcast. So I'm going with the guy that talks about the paranormal. Here he is. Who are we and why are we here? Well, if quantum consciousness is correct, if, for example, the Pen uh, Penrose idea is correct, we are literally ripples in the fine structure of space-time geometry. 
we are, which can resonate, levels of consciousness can resonate from the Planck scale, uh, the, the bottom level of the universe, uh, multiple uh, hierarchical levels to the brain. This is consistent with Eastern philosophy and also indicates that afterlife, reincarnation, and out-of-body experiences that we've heard about are plausible. The quantum soul, this may be scientifically uh, feasible. Here's a picture of uh, an out-of-body experience. I work in medicine and anesthesiology. We hear stories about this all the time. Statistical uh, examinations of people having cardiac arrest show it's a real effect. And um, uh, the near-death experience is something that really needs to be studied. Now, it's important to say that, uh, you know, that that's theory of Penrose and Hameroff's, it is disputed, you know, and people are saying that, you know, scientists are saying that, um, you know, microtubules don't work in that way. So it's a, it's certainly not a settled, it's outside the kind of norms, but it is one of a number of um, uh, kind of theories of consciousness, if you like. And because it's Penrose, you know, it's obviously kind of gains um, an awful lot of esteem because he's, uh, well, he came up with the damn thing. Not just associated it, it's his, it's his, his. So now we're going to look at, um, so so we've got here then developing a, a sense of, you know, what happens after you die. Well, there is an idea that the consciousness continues, yep. Uh, we see it in near-death experience, and there's like literally thousands of cases whereby the only uh, conclusion is that something is going on there. Yep, um, you know it is being tested. It is being uh, the kind of full force of uh, classical science is uh, trying to kind of figure out what is going on with near-death experience, even as we speak. Um, and then we've got reincarnation, you know. So there's always been this question for me, and I've been interested in near-death experience for about five years, and reincarnation ever since my uh, mother wrote to Woman's Own in 1980, what should we say, three? No, let, now let me think. There's a story here. I'm going to digress a little bit to tell you a little story about my mum. Yeah. My mother gave birth to a child, quite small at the time. Some people called him a baby. And this is one of my brothers, right? This baby had a fascination with the pillowcase that my mother had on her bed at the time that had flowers on it. Yes. And she wrote to this uh, magazine in, in Britain called Woman's Own, uh, just a kind of like, you know, light, light letter. She had no, she did have these kind of strange, um, you know, stuff going on, like out-of-body experiences herself. But she didn't have any kind of desire to write a book about reincarnation, right? It was literally like, oh, my son recognises flowers, isn't that funny? Because he's only like really, really young. He's like a baby, you know. Isn't that weird that you recognise his flowers? Do you have any stories of your children, um, you know, doing something similar, right? And she was inundated with letters. This is the, obviously the early 80s. So, 
it goes without saying that we're talking about pen, paper, envelope, stamp, the four horsemen of the postal service. And lots of letters come through. She reads them. It's all about reincarnation. Hence, you know, she gets on the old um, children that time forgot train. <laughs> and um, if you want to know more about that, go to episode one. But basically this this idea that, uh, you know, children have been here before. So we've got the end, right? We've got the end, which is the dudes go into the place. They maybe see their uncle or whatever. Then they come back into their bodies and they wake up and they say, my God, I've just had a near-death experience. Uh, or we've got the beginning as well, right? Where a baby around about four or five typically, or maybe six, typically say, oh, I remember when my name was Duncan and I used to, you know, whatever, like drive a train or whatever. And then, who is it, Duncan? It did used to drive a train. Jeez, this child has lived before. But I've always been really interested in what happens in the other plane, in the place beyond, okay? What happens in the afterlife? So there's a book. There's a best-selling book, which was written in the 90s, called Journey of Souls. Now, that word souls will, some people will be, you know, loving that word. And some people will be like, oh, for crying out loud, not souls. Well, change the word then, you know, call it Journey of Consciousness. Well, don't call the book Journey of Consciousness. But in your own mind, when you're thinking of the word soul, think consciousness. And then you'll be happy, won't you? Yeah. So this book is a quite extraordinary book. It's, I mean, you know, where to begin? It is uh, by Michael Newton, Newton, <laughs> who's a, a hypnotherapist, okay? So usually he comes across people that have, you know, some, some bad stuff is going on with their life. And he a, he's a hypnotherapist. You know what they, those guys do. I don't need to tell you what a hypnotherapist does. And then he started getting people who were... Um, well, I'm not going to tell you how we got into it, but basically he started to get into the thing of past lives, right? Accessing people's souls, as he calls them, okay? And uh, there's a there's about, I think, 29 cases in this book, Journey of Souls. And he used the, uses the cases to demonstrate, of the thousands of people that he's gone through this process with, uses these cases to demonstrate the journey from death to birth and those so in the um tibetan book of the dead that's the 49 days okay they they don't talk in this in western like you know most of these guys are if not all of them are in the states which is where this dude is based so they don't say 49 days but there's certainly like a you know there's a whole bunch of stuff they do up there and it involves the most incredible stuff. So you've got the beginning, which is the, essentially the same as the near-death experience, you know, with the, you know, you go through the tunnel and you see the lovely, whatever, the field or whatever, and then you have this life review. And then it's, it goes on, whereby you go to a library or a kind of like a school or some kind of area where you're briefed about the life that you had. There's often um, kind of like higher beings that you, almost like a panel, whereby you are, first of all, you talk to your guide about the life that you've just had. 
and then often you talk to these other beings, the kind of higher beings about it. And the whole idea is that you uh, evaluate how your life went, okay? So the idea is that, you know, you, I don't know, like you obviously all lives are filled with mistakes and errors and also good things that happen as well. And so it may be that you went into that life knowing that there was a particular kind of thing that you needed to work out, okay? I'm talking about lives or souls or, you know, kind of elements of consciousness, whatever you want to call them, um, that have multiple lives. I mean, life after life after life after life after life after life after life. Even more than that, yeah, like hundreds of lives. And through the kind of whole span of this existence, you have certain tasks, essentially, to perform within the kind of incarnate life, okay? So as an example, as a kind of, I mean, this is, you know, the whole point of the book is that he uses these cases as an example. Um, in one example, somebody was a, like years ago in the Viking day, somebody was a Viking, quite a, like, meaty Viking, beautiful, sounds like an amazing dude, like very uh, Viking-y dude, tall and strong and powerful, but a right bastard, you know, terrible guy from the point of view of how he treated other people, incredibly strong and imposing, very good warrior, but not the kind of person that you really want to befriend, you know? And so that kind of trauma that he kind of set up for loads of people in his Viking life, okay, he then has to kind of work through all of that stuff in multiple other lives. You get the idea, yeah? You get the idea? Yeah. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that you need to get your head around if you're going to engage in even believing in, in any of it, you know? But let's just go with the idea that we can believe in it in on some way. And actually, uh, Michael Newton's really good at the beginning of the book. He says, some of you will listen to this or, you know, read this. And I listen to the audiobook. So he says, listen to this. <laughs> um, thinking, oh, yeah, I like I totally get this because I remember my life or whatever, my past life. Some of you will think, well, this is quite interesting, but, you know, where's the evidence type thing? And others will just listen to it as a story. I'm not interested in convincing anyone. I'm just saying, you know, reporting my, what my process is to kind of access um, these uh, souls yep, through hypnotherapy. And, you know, that's quite a nice position at the beginning of the book because there's no sense, really, that with a book like this, you're going to have everybody believe every word, of course. And some of it is quite difficult to get your head around. Like, for instance, there's one uh, bit, I can't remember what case it is, but probably about two thirds through the book or maybe towards the end of the book. Um, somebody's talking about how you choose your next life. And this is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, really quite a beautiful story, right? Essentially, this person has, or this, you know, being, has a, a, a kind of access to uh, looking at the world, okay? They're looking at the world, they're kind of thinking, oh, well, I want to, you know, get into art. 
and I really want to be on the, the West Coast, you know, so I'm kind of looking at, you know, whatever, like Los Angeles. I can't remember the specifics, but essentially you've got like quite a lot of, at least this guy has, I don't know how many times he's done the, the circuit, you know, because of course you you go at the beginning, if you're a new soul, you've got a lot to learn, you know? And then when you get into the swing of it after thousands of years, you <laughs> you have got a bit more freedom, you know? You can kind of negotiate with your guide, and you say, yeah, right, okay. And you kind of take it a bit more easy. You know, it's like it's only a life for crying out loud. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You're up there with your mates. You There's a whole group of people that are with you, like, forever, basically. And these are your soul group, okay? So five or six people. And they will sometimes be, you know, it's, of course, it goes without saying that you're, um, you're, whether you're, your gender or your sex uh, changes from life to life, okay? Sometimes you've got a say in that. Well, it depends who you pick, I guess. But you're not always um, male. You're not always female. Uh, it, it can change, okay? And so you may have uh, the relationship, uh, like some kind of, you know, whatever partner relationship with one of your soul group. And the next thing, it may be, someone else in your soul group but your ex-partner from your previous life is somebody else very very close to you so that kind of stuff you know happens apparently okay so anyway this guy he's got a bit of an idea that he wants to you know get in the arts on the west coast and he thinks oh yeah let's take a look then who's who's down there doing it and it seems to be that you've basically got the kind of a, a, a selection of a, a selection is kind of ha uh, given to you so you've got a choice a limited choice of people whose lives you can go in and it seems to me like my kind of interpretation of of the book is that time is something other than what we well i mean this is actually very clearly stated in the book time isn't a linear thing okay it's not a chronological thing time you can basically jump around time so you can go into the future and see what this person is going to be like how they're going to be what kind of art they create if you're into the art you think brilliant i'm going to be that guy but of course you don't jump into the but it's not like the oa you know that great show on netflix where you just jump into the body when the woman is 32 or whatever you've got to start as a baby yeah so, you know, I'm going to be that guy. Great, let's go into that guy. And then and then you're, you're there. You're like in your new life. Isn't that incredible? So, <laughs> so you know, a lot to get your head around, you know. But it also resonates with um, lots of other uh, cultures, like loads of other kind of um, teachings and, and myths all around the world. And one of the things that it resonates with is the 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 book of the dead okay the bardo thadol also translate we call it the book of the dead the tibetan book of the dead but the translation is liberation through hearing during the intermediate state now on the show notes i've um i've included a link to a commentary of the book by somebody called shogram uh, Tungpa, uh, sorry, Trungpa, 
And this is a beautiful commentary on the book. And I got it from a website that you can, you know, when if you go to the PDF, you can, you know, work out what website it is. Uh, but it's essentially a website that looks at kind of different religions. Yeah. So these experiences can be seen purely in terms of the living situation. This is what we are trying to work on. In other words, the whole thing is based on another way of looking at the psychological picture of ourselves in terms of a practical meditative situation. Nobody is going to save us. Everything is left purely to the individual, the commitment to who we are. Gurus or spiritual friends might instigate that possibility, but fundamentally they have no function. How do we know that these things actually happen to people who are dying? Has anyone come back from the grave and told us the experiences they went through? Those impressions are so strong that someone recently born should have memories of the period between death and birth. But then as we grow up, we are indoctrinated by our parents and society and we put ourselves into a different framework so that the original deep impressions become faded except for occasional sudden glimpses. Even then, we are so suspicious of such experiences and so afraid of losing any tangible ground in terms of living in this world that any intangible kind of experience is treated half-heartedly or dismissed altogether. To look at this process from the point of view of what happens when we die seems like a study of a myth. We need some practical experience of this continual process of Bardo. There is the conflict between body and consciousness, and there is the continual experience of death and birth. There is also the experience of the Bardo of Dhamati, the luminosity, and the Bardo of becoming, of possible future parents or grounding situations. We also have the visions of the wrathful and peaceful divinities which are happening constantly at this very moment. If we are open and realistic enough to look at it in this way, then the actual experience of death and the bardo state will not be either purely a myth or an extraordinary shock, because we have already worked with it and become familiar with the whole thing. So the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Roger Penrose, Eben Alexander, the, uh, the Vision of Perceptual Studies at the University of uh, Virginia, um, the Shardans, Phenomenon of Man, Phenomenon of Man, easy for me to say, and Journey of Souls. Uh, all of them offering different perspectives on this question, what happens after we die. But in summation, I would say that there is a movement towards something happening. <laughs> That's the answer. After an hour and a half, you just says something. Bloody hell. Something is happening with our consciousness. Something is happening with the, the thing that makes you you. That particular uh, you know, uniqueness about you continues. In my mind, there is no doubt about it. Okay, it's quite interesting that we're getting uh, 
to the point of quantum theory and quantum mechanics whereby the you know the extraordinary things are happening it's very interesting that Avi Loeb is starting to you know investigate uh, UFOs and one uh, you know kind of hope I have is that we start in the UFO community we start to look beyond the kind of obvious places okay um, we we need to start thinking about and talking about the people that I'm talking about and this is why I'm talking about them you know but there needs to be a kind of if you like you know a kind of a meager point if you like where you know we start to make the connections and we start to get to a point where we can bring together um, these disparate ideas okay so why is it that Penrose isn't being asked about UFOs as an example why is it that uh, even Alexander isn't being asked about them as an example because consciousness is key to this and it's clearly you know absolutely present in in the UAP UFO community absolutely present and uh, you know it's clear that it's present time and time and time again in this question what happens after we die So the way I'm going to be ending the shows here on Paranormal Blip is I'm going to play a little clip from uh, an interview or, you know, a piece of audio um, that I'm going to call the archive. OK, and in the weeks and months that follow, we're going to build up an archive of clips that I feel are absolutely fundamental to this question of, you know, the paranormal to the, the question of the phenomenon. And here we've got John Mack, the, the famous, um, you know, academic who spent a lot of time looking at uh, abduction cases. Um, and anybody, you know, familiar with the UFO world will know John Mack. But for those that aren't, he essentially was, uh, again, he was at Harvard as well. He got into quite a lot of trouble that's it's actually quite interesting that you know harvard are supporting they you know uh, learnt uh, at last in in 1994 um where he got into trouble in harvard for his work around um alien abduction um but harvard is supporting loeb so that's good isn't it so anyway this is back and he's talking to terence mckenna here and what he says here is absolutely brilliant. This, uh, the, the, the traffic um, going from myth to the real world is a cardinal sin for, you know, the kind of the world that we know and for the systems in place and for, you know, classical science. This is a cardinal sin. I think this is a beautiful clip. It's been doing the rounds on... Uh, Twitter this week and I thought let's put it in the show because it's absolutely essential it's an essential message and all of the you know pushback and difficulties that we have in terms of um, you know the stigma which I think is the number one problem uh, you know it all comes back to this so here's John Mack 
And at the end of it, you get a lovely little bit of Terence. If you want to shatter the Western mental structures, the, the Western mind, so to speak, which is now permeating the whole earth in its materialist, dualistic philosophy, the way you do it is you take something that's supposed to be in the spirit world, because even in the West we can make allowance for the spirit world, and we can study it through mythology, through religion, through imagination, through poetry, but the one unforgivable sin to the Western mind is when something that should be in the spirit world transgresses and shows up in the physical world. That traffic is the cardinal sin for the Western mind, so it has great power to shatter the belief structure of the Western mind when that occurs, and that's precisely what's occurring in this abduction phenomenon. Very good point. Thanks very much Thank for talking you. with me. So there's episode two. We've got a bit more of a sense, hopefully, of what happens when we die, what happens in the afterlife. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please do share. Please do subscribe. Please do discuss. I'm available on Twitter at Paranormal Blip. I'm available on Instagram, Instagram at Paranormal underscore Blip underscore podcast. And, you know, I'm interested in hearing what you think, interested in hearing what you want to say. Um, now, next week, it's uh, Friday the 13th. So I'll choose something suitably, uh, you know, ghouly for that, ghoulish, to take a look at, a bit of a deep dive. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care. Have a brilliant week.